Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee, GP, television presenter, and author of the best-selling books The Stress Solution and The Four Pillar Plan. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome back to episode 88 of my Feel Better Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chasji and I am your host. Now, I have a very special announcement to make today for all of my podcast listeners. As you know, my third book, Feel Better in Five, comes out in the UK on December the 26th. However, as a special festive treat, I have decided to release the audiobook version of my book today a whole one week early. I've not announced this anywhere else yet. I really wanted my loyal podcast listeners to be the very first to know. This new book, Feel Better in Five, is my most practical book to date. Every single health recommendation in the book takes only five minutes and I tackle physical health, mental health, and importantly, emotional health. Now, I know that many of us find this time of year hectic and stressful, and I know that the five-minute health interventions I outline in my book are going to be invaluable over the festive period for so many of you. That is why I've decided to release the audiobook one week early. I've worked really hard with Penguin on this audiobook to make it a really special and unique offering. There is a bonus conversation which you can only hear on the audiobook where the world's leading experts in human behavior, Professor BJ Fogg from Stanford University, interviews me. He recently read my book and he very kindly gave it the following testimonial. A superb guide to making lasting change in your life and one of the best habit change programs I've ever seen. Deceptively simple, but remarkably effective. It really is an honor to have such a great quote from someone as respected and influential as Professor Fogg. So if you want to hear him interview me as well as get listening right now to feel better in five, you can download the audiobook today from Audible, Apple Books, or wherever you get your audiobooks from. Now, on to today's episode, which is the first of three special episodes that I'm releasing at the end of 2019, and actually at the end of the decade. In Feel Better in Five, I split up health into three categories, mind, body, and heart. The first section, mind, is all about doing little things each day that will look after your mental health, something that has never been more important than it is today. In today's show, I'm going to share with you some of the best clips from previous episodes on this podcast relating to this topic. It's hopefully going to be a little bit like a greatest hits of tips for you to use to look after your mind. Simple things that we can all do in our busy lives. You're going to hear clips from Natasha Devon on what mental fitness is and how to ring fence time for it each day. The neurosurgeon Rahul Jandial about the power of meditative breathing on your brainwaves. The neuroscientist and medical doctor Tara Swart on the power of your thoughts and how effective journaling can be. Professor Felice Jacker on the very latest research on how our diets 
can help our moods and alleviate some cases of depression. And I finish off with the inspirational Matt Haig, who shares his amazing and insightful wisdom. If you are a fan of the podcast, I really think you're going to love this special episode. So sit back, strap yourself in, and enjoy. Now, before we get started, as always, I need to do a quick shout out to some of the sponsors of today's show who are essential in order for me to continue putting out weekly episodes like this one. Vivo Barefoots, the minimalist footwear company, continue to support my podcast. As you may already know, I'm a huge fan of Vivo Barefoot shoes and have been wearing them exclusively for many years now, well before they started supporting this podcast. I've seen incredible results and benefits for myself and with patients when it comes to mobility, back pain, hip pain, knee pain, and so much more. I really like this brand and everything that they stand for. For listeners of my show, they continue to offer a fantastic discount. If you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 20% off as a one-time code for all of my podcast listeners in the UK, USA, and Australia. Importantly, they offer a 30-day free trial for new customers. So if you are not happy, you can simply send them back for a full refund. Perhaps you're thinking about a pair for yourself or even for a loved one at this festive time of year. These shoes are not the traditional festive gift, but one that could be of real benefit to your loved ones and for the planet, because this is a brand that takes sustainability really, really seriously. You can go to the website to see all of their last shipping dates. The final one for express shipping is the 20th of December, depending on your country. But if you've missed the boat on the last shipping dates, you can think about buying your loved one a meaningful gift of healthy feet for the new year by going to the website and buying a digital gift card. Remember, you can get your 20% off code by going to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. What I'm trying to convey at the moment to young people is there is such a thing as mental fitness. So I think we're starting to understand mental illness, but there is also mental fitness, which is like if it was a graph, that would be the vertical axis. Yeah. And if you think it's important, for example, to take time to exercise every day for your physical health, there are equivalents that you can do for your mental health. And I, I believe that we live in a culture which kind of fetishizes um overworking and not taking time for self-care and as well the notion of self-care has been commoditized um, so it, it's almost become this laughable thing of like oh have a lavender bath <laughs> type yeah. thing um, but actually that's not what it is what all self-care is is ring fencing time every day to restore your chemical balance and that's what mental fitness is when I was at school, I was a classic um, sort of perfectionist overachiever, which um, a lot of people would think is a good thing. But what people don't understand about perfectionists is that, first of all, you are constantly beating yourself up. Nothing you ever do is you good enough in your mind, but also that you don't do things that you think you won't be good at. So there's loads of things that have intrinsic value. Like, for example, you know, now I love to exercise, but I will never be any good at it. <laughs> you know, I'm never going to be an athlete, a natural athlete. That doesn't matter because that excuse me, because I enjoy it and it, and it gives me, it gives me something, you know, that I need. Um, so I, I would say throughout school, I was kind of channeling my nervous energy into 
studying, overachieving, um, always wanting the, the top grade, never thinking that anything I did was good enough. And whilst on paper, my academic career looks like a successful one, doesn't really tell the story of how I felt about it. Yeah, I think that is, that's, that's, I guess I was pausing and reflecting as you were saying that because some of those personality traits I can recognize in myself and um, the striving for perfection and only doing things that you know you can be good at. And I feel I've changed a lot in that area over the last years as I've done a lot of deep emotional work on myself and actually tried to figure out where that stuff comes from. Um, do you feel that you've had an evolution in the last few years whereby you can now you know, enjoy something, as you say, for its intrinsic value rather than because it's going to get that external validation? That's right. And it, there's another element to it as well of being a woman um, in the society, the culture that we have in Britain and, and in America and other places throughout the world where you are from your earliest moments kind of taught to see your body as an enemy or something that you need to um, sort of tweak and shape into an acceptable form. And a lot of people, I think, exercise because they're trying to change their body rather than for the the joy of it and like a lot of people that grew up in Essex um, I used to go to the gym and I used to hate it it was it was a, you know a, a bi-daily torture that was all about shaping my body into um, and punishing my body for not being that shape naturally whereas now um, I go to the park um, you know I do it in nature that there's actually a lot of evidence to show that if you exercise outside it um, magnifies the endorphin production yeah. Um, and and I do it because, it, you know, it, I'm celebrating my body rather than apologizing for my body. Yeah, absolutely. Um, have you heard of something called fractals before? No. Yes, yeah, so fractals are these geometric shapes that you only get in nature. Yeah. Um, and we and science has shown that um, that when you look at fractals, when a human being looks at a fractal. You, you lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why nature is so powerful for us. But you only get fractals in nature, in trees, in, you know, in grass, in, in coastlines, in lakes. And it's, it's incredible. So it's like we're hardwired to be in nature. So it doesn't surprise me that, that you're also finding that. When we speak about what people can do uh, when they're stressed out on an LA freeway, um, when they're about to go into a meeting with a boss and you're anticipating something not going well, when you're coming home and your relationship hasn't been good, the time-tested method and the one that we now know, see, I don't want to just tell you things without telling you how I know and why I have the privilege to even ask that question. To me, is meditative breathing. It's a very powerful way to quell that anxiety storm that those instinctive structures have done. I'm going to see my boss and those subcortical structures are firing and they're unhappy, much like you'd see a snake or you're at the edge of a cliff. There's certain things that should be released in your body, but those have been uh, repurposed in a negative, destructive way where we feel that at work. We feel that at home. We feel that when we look at certain social media. How do we tamp that down? Just like we would slowly walk away from a fear of heights how do we walk away from just the general anxiety that's filled our life during the day and i deeply uh believe and particularly now because there's hardcore data and i'll go into this a little bit is meditative breathing i don't know what mindfulness is i don't know what your mind is thinking or my mind is thinking or your mind is thinking but i know that 
that the brain is connected to the lungs and the heart through this thing called a wandering nerve. It comes down and that, that the brain can send signals down to your heart and Buddhist monks can slow down their heartbeat. I know when I put a little coil on there for people with epilepsy, kids with epilepsy, a vagal nerve stimulator, and we send electricity, the electricity can actually go upward into your brain wow. and quell epilepsy. Epilepsy seizures are an aberrant uh, electrical activity of your brain. Think of it as an arrhythmia of your heart is epilepsy of the brain. It's called a vagal nerve stimulator. It's been around for a while. This is something you can look up right now. We put electrical coil on this nerve and it calms electricity. It's not even in the brain. But meditative breathing, deep breathing, an in, in a count of four to go in, a count of three, two, one to hold and a slow release. If you do that just a little bit before you engage in that next stress-provoking task, it too works like a vagal nerve stimulator without us having to do a little surgery to calm the electricity in your brain. And you're saying, well, okay, that sounds, where did you get that? Well, we know, you know, meditation has been going on for a long time. We've seen Buddhist monks do certain things and others, deep divers are a great example of that. But we, we know this now because a study came out last year. They went through like meditative breathing with these patients and these kids and these young people, and they're watching the electricity change and get closer to that alpha wave, get closer to the calmer electrical signals in their brain after just deep, slow, deliberate breathing. And that's accessible to us all without having to pay for it. So yeah. well, that's that, the great thing. It's free, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the book is not is, – is meant to be all the magical things that are right there. I mean, you could – when you pull into work before a big operation, I'll take a few minutes and just and just slowly breathe. Yeah. And, it, and you can find an app and it's a count of four in, hold for a couple, count of four out. And then what happens is you don't have to count as much. Um, it, it becomes a habit. It becomes a part of your routine. It's free. You don't have to do it for 30 minutes. You're not going to be walking on coals and all the exaggerated people, uh, exaggerated things uh, people think about. It is a resource available to you that has been harnessed for, for millennia and that now you have crazy brain surgeons yeah. providing you the electrical proof if you're a skeptical kind of person. To me, that's magic. I talk a lot about health and well-being and, you know, we often talk about food and exercise and sleep uh, and stress, which of course are all very, very important. But, but what I really like about your approach is that you, you talk a lot about how important our thoughts are, how important our mind is. And I don't feel that that gets enough airtime when we talk about health and well-being. Why is it that our thoughts are so important? So I actually think that the pillars that you talk about, like sleep, diet, exercise, mindfulness, um, they're important to improve the quality of our thoughts. Because if you actually think about it, wh why are you doing those things? You're not just doing it so that your body is in good shape. You're doing it so that you can think more clearly, you can do your job better, you can have better relationships. Um, and all of that really boils down to how you think. Um, so all the physical factors put your brain in good condition and then it's what you do with it that really counts. Yeah, I guess it's, um, it, it works both ways, doesn't it? Because I guess, you know, paying attention to these physical factors helps your brain function, helps you think more clearly. But at the same time, I guess if you change your mindset and you work on your thoughts, it can make it easier to actually do a lot of these physical things we're talking about. Absolutely. I mean, one of the chapters in the book is about that brain-body connection. So I think because 
psychology was around for a long time before we could scan brains and bodies, it left us with this sort of idea that there's a cut off at the neck and that what you think and feel isn't connected to what goes on in your body and vice versa. But absolutely, if you're cold or hungry or tired, it affects the quality of thinking. And if you're confident or anxious, it affects the nerves and hormones in your body. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this whole brain-body connection that you do beautifully talk about in the book um, is so important. And I guess for me, it's something that's really been missing in my medical training. It's, it's something that I think has been missing for a long time in medicine, particularly 20th century medicine, the way we've, you know, the, the way medicine really, really evolved to do so many great things. But I think we've lost lost the idea that, that really, I guess, people have known for, for donkey's years. Was that one of your frustrations with medicine? I heard you speaking about that on another one of your podcasts, and I, it absolutely resonated with me. I was almost relieved to hear you say it, to feel like I'm not the only one. And you'll notice that I sort of started the book by talking about how we evolved and the fact that once we developed this cortex, which is much more, you know, a modern part of the brain that we use for articulated speech and for predicting and planning for the future, the part of the brain that had got us to that point, the intuitive, emotional part of the brain, sort of seemed to be downgraded by society, you know, like logic and um, being able to speak suddenly became important and gut feeling and emotions just became less important. Yeah, I, I totally agree that there, there is that societal narrative, isn't it? Isn't there that, you know, logic is, um, logic is key and intuition sort of gets marginalized and feelings get marginalized. Um, what I think you've done so well, and obviously you, you're, you're very well trained, you know, huge, um, huge scientific backgrounds, you have brought some of these ideas that have been there before to life, but you've got some scientific grounding in them now. And, and one of your, you know, I guess one of your core concepts is how do we create the life that we want? How do we be in charge of uh, what happens to, you know, what happens to our life rather than let life sort of happen to us? Um, is that something you've, is that something you feel you've, you've always had an inkling towards or is this something that has really evolved in your thinking in the past few years? That's, it's funny you should say that because as I look back now, it feels like a lot of the concepts in the book were always there in the way that I lived my life. But even since writing the book, I've come up with this new analogy, which is, let's say you and I want to go on a journey. Would you rather be sitting in the passenger seat and I choose where we go and the route that we take, or would you rather be driving and choosing the destination? It's kind of like that in life. It's very easy to go through the motions every day and let life happen to you. But if you think about it, if we stop and step back, we have a lot more choice in what we tolerate, in what happens to us, in the choices that we make, um, than we necessarily think. It's easy to just sort of go on autopilot. And I think that's something that it really does happen these days, doesn't it? We, many people are living life on a treadmill day to day, week to week, before you know another year's gone by. I think there are some really powerful tools in your approach. I just want to touch on journaling. Um, so I'm aware that you know journaling, I know what journaling is, but some people listening to this may have heard that term, but may not really understand what, what is it? How do I journal? So, you know, if someone has never done this before and they want to, how might they start? So you literally get a, a blank sort of diary. And you can start by just saying what happened to you today. So, yeah. you know, I could literally say I woke up earlier than usual, feeling a bit grumpy, 
went to, you know, meet Rongan and do this podcast, immediately cheered up. And even just in that little snippet, what you've realized is maybe if I don't get enough sleep, that it affects my mood. Maybe if I'm with somebody who I really respect and have fun with, that improves my mood. You've learned something already just by recording that. Over time, you can get down to talking about things like emotions and intuition. You're basically talking to yourself. You're recording it to look at later. So you might say, you know, I had an argument with this person and this is how it left me feeling. I wish I hadn't said X. If something like this happened again, this is what I'd choose to do in future. So you basically use the journal as a way to sort out your thoughts, to get them out of your head and sort of be able to look at them more objectively and create a narrative that you can look back at and make certain different decisions about your future. I do journal from time to time. I haven't made it a like a, a constant daily practice, but I go through periods of time in my life where for a few days, a few weeks, I will journal. And I personally like doing it first thing in the morning as part of my morning routine. And, you know, I, I wonder if you know about this as a neuroscientist, but I'm I'm not entirely sure, but... Sometimes I feel, you know, you've, 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 you've been in a deep seat, you've woken up, there's so much going around in your subconscious. And when you just start writing first thing in the morning, I sort of feel that what I'm doing is I'm just helping to process my subconscious mind and get it out onto paper. So as you say, it's getting out of my head and onto paper. And, and one of the big problems I see these days is that people are living in their heads. They've got all kinds of anxieties, fears, insecurities rushing around their brain. But the simple act of writing it out in some way, quite literally, takes it from your brain and out, you know, onto paper? Well, I fully believe that um, just like doing aerobic exercise um, can help you to reduce levels of the stress hormone cortisol, that speaking out loud or writing down these thoughts that are racing round and round in your head, instead of suppressing them or just letting them build up, you know, till it feels like your head's going to explode, is a way of reducing stress. So actually... If you've got anxieties or negative thoughts and you write them down or you have somebody that you trust that you can talk to, it gets it out of your brain body system, just exactly like exercising can release stress hormones from your brain body system. Just taking a quick break in today's conversation to give a shout out to the sponsors of today's show. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast to be really clear, I absolutely prefer that people get all of their nutrition from foods. But for some of us, this is not always possible. Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. So if you are looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com, forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Felice, I've got to tell you from my perspective, I'm so excited uh, to be talking to you. Thank I you. have been reading your research for years, um, your SMILES trial. I think I've lectured to hundreds, if over a thousand doctors now, talk to them about that data, talked about it in Great both of my hear. books. So you are someone who I have been following for a while and thank you for making the journey up to my house today to talk. Such a pleasure. Well, let, let's dive into that research because I, I think the SMILES trial, which is, you know, I remember seeing that when it came out thinking, 
oh my God, this is the first time that I had seen a randomized control trial showing how diet can improve symptoms of depression. You know, using the same level of evidence that we would expect from a pharmaceutical drug. What we did in that study was we we recruited people with major clinical depression and we randomly assigned them to get either social support or dietary support for a period of three months. Now, the social support, we already know that that's helpful for people with depression. Yeah. That's just going and talking to someone. You could be talking about the football or your grandchildren or whatever, but it, it, we know that it's helpful and it's called a befriending protocol. They often use it in psychotherapy trials as a control condition. And then the other group saw a clinical dietitian for three months and that dietitian just worked with those people to help them to gradually make positive changes to their diet, to set some goals, to do it in a way that was feasible and achievable for them. And that was things like swapping out their, you know, refined carbs, their white flour, white bread, et cetera, for whole grain versions, um, increasing the amount of vegetables and fruit in their diet, starting to eat more legumes, so your lentils and chickpeas, et cetera, having some nuts and seeds, eating fish, getting some olive oil into their diet, but also really importantly, reducing the intake of, you know, the junk and processed foods, the sweets and cakes and chocolate and fried foods over a three-month period. And at the end of the study, because we only had 67 people, we had no expectation whatsoever that we would see a significant difference between the groups on the depression outcomes. We just thought it was incredibly unlikely. And I sat with the statistician and we did the stats, or she did the stats, and it was, you know, you don't unblind the groups until the end. We just knew it was group A and group B. And there was just this massive difference in the depression scores after three months. And we were just completely blown away. How, how big a difference? Well, uh, to put it into, a, I guess, a, a meaningful context, more than 30% of the people in the dietary group achieved what we would call full remission, where they just weren't depressed at all anymore. And that was compared to about 8% in the social support group. So hold on, that, we, we just got to pause there because that is absolutely remarkable. You, you were talking about people who have got moderate or severe depression, mm -hmm. who literally were, were, they were doing exactly what they were doing. If they were on treatment, I believe they stayed, they were already, yes, they, they stayed right. on everything they were doing, but mm -hmm. they were just split into two groups. And if you change your diet, within 12 weeks, you got above a 30% remission rate in symptoms mm -hmm. of depression. That is absolutely staggering. What is a nervous planet? Well, nervous in the sense that I think a lot of us are feeling stressed out because of the 21st century pace of living and this kind of overloaded culture of everything, which is often kind of paralyzing, but also nervous in the sense that of a nervous system as sort of like we're connected in ways that we're, we've never been connected before. So we are kind of, our emotions and our psychology influence each other and we've got that's a wider influence than it used to be when we used to live in a hunter-gatherer communities of at most 100 people. Now we can encounter 100 new people before getting out of bed. We are saturated with everything. And it's, you know, it's parallel, I think, a lot of the inverted commas craziness of the world to our own mental states. And we're not making that connection. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much in this in this book, Notes on a Nervous Planet. Um, I'd highlight a couple of areas I just thought would be quite interesting to talk about. I mean, 
you know, the, the, could probably spend four hours just talking about this book. Um, you've, you've got the section on time. We need the time we already have. I really loved it because you finish it off saying, we often find ourselves wishing for more hours in the day, but that wouldn't help anything. The problem clearly is that isn't that we have a shortage of time. It's more that we have an overload of everything else. I think that just sums it up so beautifully. Um, is this something you've been sitting with a lot, you know, in terms of when you were writing this? I mean, cause- Yeah, and, uh, you know, something, you know, maybe hitting your 40s you, you, and having kids grow older, you, you're aware of a passing of time. But, I, I, I'm, the, you know, I feel like we all say it, don't we? We all say, if only I had the time, I'd read more or I'd do this more or I'd travel more. Or, and we, we're all feeling that absence of time. But in real terms, we've got as much time, if not more, than any humans have ever had. And yet, so something else is at play. And I think there's two things. One, we've got more literal demands on our time. And also we, we, we have kind of conditioned ourselves to live somewhere else than the present. So, you know, I'm a great fan of the education system. I'm from a family of teachers, but I, I sometimes think the whole education system is a kind of reverse mindfulness where you're, you're continually thinking about the future. So you're learning not for its own sake, but you're learning for grades, for exams, for the job at the end of it. Then you go to university or not, and then you're thinking about the career path you take. And so from a young age, we're trained to always have that sort of forward thinking, that forward momentum, and it carries on into the workplace in our careers. And it doesn't encourage, we're not encouraged to just be grateful in the moment for what we have or know how to appreciate what we have. And I feel like continually, we're, it's always about accumulating something. Now, for instance, my latest technological obsession is my pacer app on my phone to see how many steps I've done now it's a good thing to encourage people to to walk more and I'm a great fan of walking more but the fact that we turn everything into a number means that we're, we're constantly trying to accumulate so I, I'm always worried now if I've done my 10,000 steps and I, it doesn't matter the quality of those steps where I'm walking I just want to reach for 10,000 number and whether it's our income bracket or whether it's you know our grades at school whether it's a you know a measurement we want to our bodies to be or whatever it is we were conditioned i feel to feel like we're not quite enough in the present moment and we've always got to become the after picture we've got to become the next version of ourselves and it it's easy to forget that we're actually everything we need is really already there but we just sort of pile too much stuff on it and we sometimes lose ourselves yeah i think this is probably one of the biggest problems in this nervous planet in which we're currently living in is that it's never enough. There's always something else to do. There's always somebody else doing something that is perceived to be better that you think, oh, you know, I, I will be happy when I do this. Yeah. And then you achieve it and you're like, oh, it's not really made much difference <laughs> yeah, yeah. to how I feel about myself. I think often it's about slowing down in some way. So for, for me personally, um, I know you're a great believer in it too, but you know I believe physical health and mental health are so interlinked. So one of the things that helped me early on and, and really helped me get over panic attacks was just going running. And I know not everyone can do it or wants to do it, but for me, having that space away from people, from my work, from everything else, just getting out, going running was a massive help. And I know it sounds funny, but there's a kind of truth to it. Where 
when I was running, I knew that was a place I couldn't have a panic attack because the symptoms of running are the symptoms of a panic attack. <laughs> you've got the breathlessness, you've got the racing heart, you're sweating, but you know why you are. Yeah. And it's kind of a pain that you can control over. So I found it very empowering, not just on the endorphin level and the feeling of accomplishment, but actually it gave you that sense of sort of control which panic took away and uh, yeah i'm great so running and yoga are my things i I love doing yoga yoga came later i actually started doing yoga for my back rather than for my anxiety but i noticed that it was having a knock-on effect and whether that was simply just taking that time for myself slowing my breathing down which is something i still watch um another thing which is really important for me is sleep you know it's uh, it seems out of the triumvirate of diet exercise sleep sleep is often the neglected one you're preaching to the converted yeah, <laughs> you know I'm, I'm just nodding my head yeah. and i think you know because no one really makes money out of our sleep you know other than duvet manufacturers and uh, and people who make um blackout blinds but you know, sleep, you, you, and in fact, I mentioned it. In and I'm book. happy for them to make money, actually, yeah. it's a good service they're yeah, providing. Yeah, exactly, it's <laughs> a good service. But we've got a lot of a lot of people making money out of us not sleeping. You know, the, the head of Netflix uh, last year, I think he was being tongue-in-cheek, but also slightly serious, said that Netflix's main competitor is sleep. You know, if they can get people to stay up to three in the morning watching episode seven of whatever, The Good Life or whatever, then, The Good Place, then um, they will, you, you know, be making more um value for netflix and so um, and we do you know our quality of sleep has changed as you know and you know the actual hours we spend asleep changes and obviously social media is a big part of that having our phones by the bed and all of that can be bad for that but i, I think essentially it's about creating a space how whatever it is whether it's doing yoga whether it's reading a book whether it's going for a run where we're just unplugged we're just ourselves. We're not f- working. We're not worried about the money that we're not making or whatever. And we we can just be rather than, you know, the, the reverse of the Nike slogan, just do it, you know, where we can just actually be. And just enough. almost disconnecting in order to yeah, reconnect. Absolutely. That concludes today's episode of a very special compilation Feel Better Live More podcast. I really hope you enjoyed hearing those clips that my team and I have put together. What was your favorite tip? Do let me know on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on LinkedIn. Of course, some of you will be hearing these clips for the first time, but for some of you, it may well be the second time. Either way, If you want to actually go back and listen to the full episode with one of my guests today, just go to the show notes page for this episode, which is drchastity.com forward slash 88, and you will see clickable links to all of the original episodes. Now, just a quick reminder that my latest book, Feel Better in Five, comes out in the UK in just one week. Of course, you will have heard in the introduction today that the audiobook is available from today, but the actual paperback and ebook will be available on Boxing Day. And don't forget, if you pre order a copy before December the 26th, Penguin will send you out a free Feel Better in Five success chance. One of the key principles of being able to make new behaviors stick in the long run is to celebrate your success. And this free success chance has been designed around my book. I will make it really easy for you to track your progress on my Feel Better in 5 plan. So if you go to drchastity.com forward slash FBI5 chart, 
you will see an email address to which you can send in your receipts. This offer applies to all orders placed before December the 26th. So even if you have already pre-ordered the book, you are absolutely still able to claim your free charts. Also, just a quick reminder, in January 2020, I will be hitting the road and speaking live and doing book signings in various cities around the UK. You can see all the dates at drchatterjee.com forward slash events. I really hope to meet some of you in person this January. Before the end of the year, in fact, before the end of the decade, I'm going to be releasing two more very special compilation episodes. So do keep your eye on your email if you are signed up to my weekly newsletter or keep an eye on your podcast app and make sure that you have pressed subscribe. If you enjoy my weekly shows, please do consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. And you can also help me spread the word by taking a screenshot right now and sharing with your friends and family on your social media channels. I really do appreciate your support. A big thank you to Richard Hughes for editing and Vedasa Chatterjee and Joe Murphy for producing this week's show. That is it for today. I really hope each and every single one of you have a fantastic Christmas and festive season, whatever you choose to do. Make sure that you have pressed subscribe and I will be back in about one week's time with my latest episode. Remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes is always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.